Well, we're in a two-part series. I did part one last week, and we're looking at Revelation chapters two and three. Uh, the book of Revelation, just to give you a little background, was written late in the first century, about 95 AD. It was penned by John in exile on the Isle of Patmos. And this apocalyptic literature is full of symbols and metaphors describing what John is seeing in this vision of the end of the world, at least as we know it. In chapter 1, John has a powerful vision of Jesus. And then in chapters 2 and 3, John records seven different letters to seven different churches. And these churches, by the way, were real churches spread throughout the region. But the messages to each church are timeless. And so what we get in these letters are basically descriptions of the condition of various churches and what Jesus has to say to them. Uh, Last week I called them, they're almost like performance reviews, job performance reviews. But it helps us to understand what Jesus might be saying to our church, to Renaissance Church in our particular spiritual condition. And today we look at three out of the seven churches, a dead church, a weak but highly honored church, a lukewarm but greatly loved church. And the first one is the church of Sardis, the dead church. Let's read verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's not a great performance review right there. The public image of the church in Sardis was fantastic. From, from a distance, right, they looked like a vibrant church. Maybe their singing was robust, their preaching animated, people who attended the church, uh, you know, were kind of out in the community, spinning things in such a way that made the church look amazing. Probably lots of activity. But Jesus says in so many words that they aren't what they appear to be. You know, they kind of look good on paper maybe, but when you actually get up, there's some deadness. Now, almost any church can paint themselves as lively today through social media, right? That's what social media is all about. Project to the public just what you want them to see. A skilled graphic designer, PR person can make the deadest church look alive by carefully curating the content that they put out to the public. The church can boast on their website or other online platforms about how great they are when in actuality they're maybe spiritually dead. And the reason churches do this is obvious. It's just like the business world, right? They are trying to promote themselves to attract new attendees. They exaggerate how wonderful they are, just like advertisers do. I mean, we've gotten our share of that, right, this week, Black Friday and the whole thing, Christmas coming. But they exaggerate how wonderful they are, uh, just like advertisers do for the purpose of capturing interest. But it's really a form of lying to project ourselves to be something we are not 
It's the very definition, actually, of hypocrisy, right? It's fake. Jesus doesn't want us to be fake. He wants us to be real and authentic. Now, I don't think the church at Sardis had a reputation of being alive, but then when you got up close, it was actually a group that was all forlorn and melancholy music and everybody moping and the preaching was monotone and drab through and through. Probably not at all. There's probably kids running around. There's probably some energy in this community. Uh, they're singing with volume. I imagine the preachers preaching with gusto. Maybe lots of religious activity done with fervor. And it's probably why they had a reputation of being alive. But Jesus is never impressed with frothy activity or human passion. I mean, you can find that kind of aliveness at a soccer game even more, right? Or a local bar with live music. You can find that aliveness at a Thanksgiving Day parade or a children's birthday party. What Jesus means when he calls them dead is not an outward thing at all, but an inward thing. He's referring to the inward man, the inner person of the heart. He's talking about their prayer life, the communion that they have with Christ. And again, maybe they you know, did all the things, singing and attending church and evangelizing and all that, but their hearts were far from God. The aliveness Jesus is talking about can only come from one place, intimacy with God. The life Jesus is talking about is produced by that intimate communion with God, abiding closely with Christ. It's a little side note here, but I started this church 20 years ago, right? 2003, really went kind of 2001, actually. We started praying about this church. But many of the faces at Renaissance Church, change from year to year. You know, being in a city, uh, the population is transient. And many of you who are here now won't be here next year. You know, you'll be somewhere else or five years from now because you're going to move somewhere uh, because that's how cities are, especially Providence. And you'll have to shop for a church. And I've actually helped a lot of people through the years who are part of Renaissance Church and they move to another place, another city or whatever, and kind of help them, from a distance at least, to find a church. And it can be a little overwhelming. All I can say is don't be enamored by a church's outward appearance of liveliness. Upbeat music, polished speakers, branding, the cool building, the lights, the smoke, the expensive equipment and props, a church can actually have all of that and be completely devoid of the Holy Spirit. Actually, a cult religion can have all of that and God is not even a part of it. You have to look past all the outward and look at the heart. Uh, do the people, especially the leaders, really know God? Is the preaching biblical? Is there a culture of intimacy 
with God? Does the ministry turn people away from sin? Again, you know, state-of-the-art sound systems and amazing musicians and 10-talent preachers and all that, that's all good. Those are nice bonuses. Uh, those, are, those are nice things to have, but that does not equate with the authenticity that we should be looking for. But authenticity is very quiet, isn't it? It doesn't, it's not in your face. It's not a big, loud thing. And it takes some discernment to look past all the bells and whistles to, as I said last week, kind of strip it down and weigh it. Is this thing really the kind of church that God is resting upon? Well, verse 2 says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. The way back is always the same. Remember what this is all about. Go back to the start. You know, when we were called by Jesus, it wasn't just a call to, uh, you know, to stop abusing drugs or to become a well-behaved citizen or to, you know, become a Christian worker. It wasn't that at all, just to be a student of the Bible. Our call was relational at the heart. It was a call to be reconciled to God, to know God and to enjoy him forever, to be sons and daughters in relationship with the Father. That is our purpose, now and forever. We were lavished by God's love, and as a result, we fell in love with God, right? It's a little like an estranged child coming back home to a lovesick father. Or it's a little like a man and woman falling in love and getting married. But even those things are merely shadows of our relationship with God. But the kind of life God wants in us is a love life. That's our purpose. He says in the next verse, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yikes, right? As Jesus does in some of the other letters, he offers not just some wonderful promises, but some consequences, warnings, if they don't. I was thinking about how some Christians and preachers even have tried to tell us that God doesn't motivate us by fear, right? Only by love. I've heard so many people try to argue this through the years, all the way back since Bible school days. They say, what motivates us is hearing about how much God loves us and being threatened with judgment does nothing. This just isn't true. It's both, and you find both in Scripture. And listen, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God motivates us with his love, absolutely. But he also offers severe warnings to us, to shake us. To the church at Sardis, he says that if they don't wake up, the time will come when Christ will appear and come against them. 
I mean, it reminds me of the lively activity probably that was happening at the temple in the days of Jesus, right? People greeting each other, buying sacrifices, reciting prayers, laughing, singing, and Jesus comes in like a record scratch and turns over the tables and drives out the money changers in fury. Or it's like the high school party with hundreds of kids at a house. Maybe you've been to one of these when you were a kid when the parents were away, but then for some reason the parents suddenly come home. The music stops. Everybody's freaking out. Everybody's taking off, scattering in different directions. Laughter ceases. The party ends. Why? Because it was unsanctioned fun that did not include dad. The kids wanted to use dad's house, use dad's money, but didn't want dad there and didn't even want dad to know what was happening. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you don't return to me, I'll come and shut down the lively, so-called lively church party. Verse four. Yeah, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, apparently some were walking closely with Jesus. It wasn't the whole uh, church that was a mess. There was a minority group that were walking near to the Lord. Um, and he calls them worthy. I've heard it said by Christians that it's not God's will for us to feel unworthy, right? We're all worthy, they say. But with the church at Sardis, he calls only some worthy. The majority must have been unworthy in God's sight. So what does that mean? I mean, in one sense, everybody's worthy. Everybody's worth something to God because, I mean, he died for us, right? So that shows what great worth we are as people. But he's talking about something different. He's saying some are living lives that are in beautiful alignment with God and others are not. Some are in close relationship with God and some are not. All right, verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As with each church, Jesus offers a wonderful and unique promise, actually, that we could do a whole series on just the promises. As I said, I'm kind of scrunching um, seven messages into just two weeks, so we're not getting too detailed. But the important thing to know is that our devotion is rewarded. The Christian life is not an easy road. It takes effort and focus. It means forsaking all else in order to love Christ supremely. It is a fight all the days of our life. It's a war, really. We are in a spiritual war. I mean, there are forces of darkness that our, our Ephesians 6 says we're wrestling against these forces of darkness that are scheming against us. They want to trip us up. They prowl around uh, like a roaring lion, right, to rip us apart, to get us off track, to knock us off balance, to push us back, to try to squash us 
Satan comes to kill and steal and destroy. You know, we can wake up and be oblivious to that, but it, it, it doesn't matter whether we're aware of it or not. It's happening. That's why the Bible says over and over, be sober, be alert, be self-controlled, because this war is happening, and they are targeting God's people. So it is a fight. Jesus sees the fight, and he rewards those who fight through. Let's look at this next church, Philadelphia, the weak but highly honored church. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So what's the open door? I have no idea. Nobody does. Uh, but it reminds us that God is sovereign. Uh, Jesus says that they're a church that has but little power. What does that mean? I think from the context, it's safe to assume he's not referring to spiritual power, but to status in society. Maybe they were small in numbers. Maybe they had little influence in things like politics. Maybe they were not great leaders or they were not highly educated. Uh, they didn't have a lot of money or clout, and that sort of thing. They might have even been like physically frail or elderly. Uh, they were a small, despised religious community. And that's not an easy experience. Even in a city like Providence, we can feel a little like that. Or even in New England, uh, where the church no longer enjoys the influence it once had, you know, in the 1700s or the 1800s. We're kind of a relatively marginalized bunch. I think about Hebrews 11. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. But no matter how little societal power we have, we can be encouraged that Jesus sees our loyalty to him. He knows those who have not given in to societal pressures and are true to his name. You know, often those who are despised by popular society are greatly praised by the Lord, right? Remember that Jesus calls us to be in the world, yet not of it. In fact, we're to be not of this world in the same way that Jesus is not of this world. You can read about that in John 17. Beware when you are fitting in too well. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 6. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Verse 9 says this, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What an interesting promise, right? God is actually interested in our vindication. 
I don't think it's a promise for everybody everywhere, but these particular people were so bullied by these, the Jews, these certain Jews that lived in this particular region, uh, so bullied that God was going to flip it upside down. And he said, the day will come when you will be vindicated. He's so upset that his people have been beaten down that he is going to dramatically vindicate his oppressed people. Verse 10 says this, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. My guess here is that he's referring to the full expression of the great tribulation, as we call it, that's described in the book of Revelation. The judgments described in Revelation that will come upon the whole earth are like nothing that the world has ever seen. Uh, even the, the, the flood, the Holocaust, all of the worst wars and genocides. I mean, you're talking about something that is so much greater than all of that put together. This wrath that will be unleashed in a very short period of time at the end of the world, kind of the last few minutes of the world as we know it. And that's really what most of the book of Revelation describes. Jesus is letting them know that he will keep them from that. And that's good news. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. It's a simple exhortation to basically keep doing what you're doing. Keep patiently enduring despite your small societal status. Jesus says, I am coming soon. And this has been kind of translated in different ways. Your Bible might read a little different. Um, but some translations read more like, when I come, I will come quickly so that you will be surprised and not ready. This promise of the return of Christ is not new. Of course, Jesus himself uh, promised his disciples that he return, make all things new. And I think maybe in this generation, we've gotten away from this reality uh, because, you know, we think, well, okay, it's been 2,000 years. Obviously, it's not coming soon, the way we think soon, right? So we can just kind of blow it off, put it out of our mind, you know. But here's the reality. Christ could come back at any moment, right? I mean, he could, right, before I finish this sermon, <laughs> Sure, he has not returned in 2,000 years, but the truth is that the day will come, and it might be a very ordinary day to almost everyone, but Jesus will split the skies and come back in power and glory. So it probably won't happen today, but it could. May we always be ready. Verse 12, the one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And you can read about that in Revelation 21 and 22. 
Which brings me to this last church that we're going to talk about, the church in Laodicea. And if you've only heard of one of the seven churches, you've probably heard about this one. This is the one that's most preached on, the lukewarm but greatly loved church. Verse 14, it says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And then Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, of all the seven churches, this one kind of hits home the most. I think that's why it's preached on so frequently, at least for this part of the world in America. We probably could be described in America as the lukewarm church, the most lukewarm church on the earth. Now, Laodicea was a city known for kind of piping in water from faraway hot springs. And when the water arrived, it was lukewarm. So they knew exactly what that meant. Because the city was wealthy, they probably didn't drink the water in that condition because it wasn't refreshing. They found ways to cool the water or heat the water for their various beverages. But Jesus says something strange here. The hot and cold, he refers to our metaphors, right, for spiritual fervor. And we could understand if he said that, I wish you were red hot and fervor, but because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of your mouth. We can kind of get that. But he says in so many words that he would rather have us be cold than lukewarm. I pray that this would just shock us today. Like right down in the deepest part of us. Does he really mean that? I mean, it's not the first time God has said something shocking like that. In Malachi, God was so upset at the people that he wished somebody would just close the doors of the temple. Just shut it down. I don't even want it. I don't even want to be there. In Amos, he's so upset at the deadness, the lukewarmness of his people. He said, just do away with all the songs and festivals and all this like making sacrifices and all the religious activities. Just get it away from me, he says. I don't even want it. In sports, the person cold to football wouldn't even bother playing football or even watching football, right? They wouldn't even show up for anything to do with football. In romance, someone cold toward a person would not even be interested in the person. They wouldn't bother reading a letter from the person who loves them. They wouldn't care at all. God is saying he'd rather have us be completely cold and uninterested than to be half-hearted or lukewarm. That's kind of shocking. You know, we think, well, you know, he's just, he'll take what we give him. Right? That's kind of how we think of God. Well, you know, whatever we, whatever we can give him, he's like, all right, well, it's not the best, but it's fine. It's fine. I'll take it. Jesus is making it really clear that he is not like that. 
He'd rather have us not even claim to love him than claim to love him but have a tepid devotion. He's making it clear that if we're going to follow him, we must do it with our whole hearts. It'd be like a football coach saying, I'd rather have you quit football and join the chess team than be here with such a lousy attitude. I think sometimes we imagine that certain Christians are, you know, really passionate and, you know, the uh, supercharged Christians and then others are just, you know, ordinary Christians with sort of an average measure of devotion. But God is like really blowing that away here. That's not what he wants. He wants every single person in his church to be red hot with fervor. Everyone, no exceptions. Verse 17, he says, for you say, I am rich. It's almost like they're disagreeing with, at least in their minds, with Jesus. Like, oh, we're rich. We're awesome. We've prospered. We don't need anything. But Jesus says, you're not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The Christians in Laodicea thought more highly of themselves than they ought. I mean, you get the idea that they viewed themselves as pretty, pretty amazing, right? Rich, successful, self-sufficient. In some Christian circles, these are like the distinguishing marks of the blessing of God. These were Christians who had it together. They were making money. They were educated. They were, they were kind of together. They had some cultural influence they were leaders, maybe. But Jesus breaks the news to them that they don't realize how spiritually pathetic they are. He uses five descriptors. Five. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I mean, can you imagine that at your job performance review? But the sad thing is they thought that they were spiritual, but they were actually a mess. They really thought that they were doing well. And the performance review of Jesus was a total shock to them. I mean, it kind of reminds you, right, of the people that are shocked on the day of judgment, right? What? Lord, we, were, we did stuff. We did miracles. We, did all, we ate and drank in your presence. We did so many incredible things in your name. We were all about church work. And Jesus says, I, 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 I never knew you. That always gets to me, just the level of surprise that there is such a contrast sometimes between the way we as humans judge ourselves or assess ourselves and how God assesses us. This is why we get into the Word. This is why we're reading 
these kinds of scriptures because we don't want to be shocked down the road. You know, we don't want to be like, what? You know, we, we want to hear, we want to be awakened now to it. We want to be judging ourselves, assessing our own spiritual lives the way God is assessing our spiritual lives. Well, then he says, verse 18, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You know, we can easily focus on the rotten condition of the Laodicean Christians, but in these verses, we see a stunning mercy of Christ. I mean, listen, if some of us this morning are maybe realizing we are lukewarm, these verses are shocking in one sense, but they are incredibly filled with hope. Jesus doesn't just shoot down bombs of disappointment from above. He's not looking away in disgust. He doesn't just blow in, give a negative performance review, and then walk out of the room. No, we have a God who sees how poorly we are doing and offers to get involved, to train us, to help us, to equip us, to give us whatever we need to help us. He offers to make us pure like gold. He offers to clothe us in white garments of purity, you know, to give us his righteousness to live out this Christian life. He offers to cleanse our eyes and enable us to see spiritually. He is our sufficiency. I love this. You know, the Christian life is definitely hard, but Jesus gives us everything we need to live godly. Verse 19, those whom I love, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is a huge theme in Scripture. God knows how sensitive we can be to negative performance reviews, right? Almost nobody likes strong criticism, except for me. No, I'm just kidding. Nobody does. I don't, I've never met anybody, especially when it comes from God, right? It can really hurt almost wound the heart. It's strong criticism to these Laodicean Christians, but it is because God loves them. And it is because he loves us that he will tell us the truth about ourselves. I mean, how unloving would it be if he viewed us as a spiritual mess but we thought we were doing awesome, and he just said nothing. He just let us go on, thinking that we're doing great, and just, I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to hurt their feelings. What kind of love is that? That's a twisted love. That's not what fathers do, what good fathers do. They reprove their children when needed, so they will be better. And so many words God is saying to them to not get all mopey and miffed, but to just be zealous and change. 
Don't act all wounded like I don't love you. I do love you. In fact, I wouldn't even bother telling you these things if I didn't love you. Verse 20 says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, Jesus takes his sentiment of love one step further with these words. It's actually a little sad, isn't it, (laughs) that Jesus is pictured on the outside of the church, but it's apparently how he feels. Jesus sort of speaking all these words to his people through the mail slot in the door. But the promise, listen to the promise, it's wonderful. If they will listen to his voice of pleading and open the door, Jesus will come in and fellowship with them. He doesn't promise to just come in, but to come in and eat with them. And as I've brought out many times before, you know, I know we eat quick in our society sometimes. Hopefully you didn't on Thanksgiving. At least you took some time to be with your family or your friends or whatever and take some time and just enjoy each other's company. But eating together in the ancient world was a huge expression of intimacy and friendship. Jesus was essentially saying, I want to be close friends with you. I'm not just interested in you being good Christian workers or being well-behaved Christians. My heart is to know you. Again, it goes back to this purpose of God creating us, that we might know him and enjoy him forever. Jesus is seen here, listen, yearning to be intimate with a church that had shut him out of their lives. Jesus is actually longing to come near to Christians he describes as wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So if we feel way off track, if we feel spiritually flat, we can be of good cheer because Christ extends his love out to us. He wants us still. And the last couple verses say this, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne and I also, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he says that over and over, doesn't he? He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. What, it, what he means is that if we have the apparatus to understand what he's saying, then we should take heed to what he is saying. In other words, don't just listen to it, but do it. Turn to God with your whole heart. Don't accept your lame spiritual condition. Come to God and let him ignite fresh fire in you. Come to God in your weakness and apathy and let him revive you. I'm going to leave it there. I just want to take a moment, though, and pray for all of us in this. This message has been on my heart for a while to just... Pause and hear what the Spirit is saying to us. 
out of Revelation 2 and 3. I think that it really is easy to, back to the church at Sardis, you know, very easy to um, just kind of live off of our reputation. I mean, I think we have a great website. I think if you go to the website, you think, whoa, man, this, this church is like, wow. We curate our social media. We do. I'll admit it. You know, we put out there, just, you know, kind of put out different pictures and images in our scrapbook, man. People who know me around the state, other pastors and ministers, I think, think you know, like, whoa, these Renaissance church are like the pillars of prayer. Like, they're all about the pursuit of God. I mean, you go to our website, there's a hundred days of pursuit, a hundred devotionals about the pursuit of God. I mean, I think our reputation in the state is like that church is on the move. Those guys are hungry for God. I don't know. Is that, is that, is Jesus in agreement with all that? I don't actually think he is. Maybe we should start posting some things on social media that are more honest. Um, yeah, we have about 200 people that call Renaissance Church their home, uh, but about a third show up on Sunday, and a lot less than that come to the prayer meetings. Anyways, we welcome you to come be a part of our church. I mean, who's on? nobody's honest like that. But I don't know. I feel like we have to get real with one another. Like, are we really who we think we are? Are we living up to our reputation as a church? I mean, I think, again, if you went through our website and really scoured it, you would think, man, this church is doing stuff in the city. They are reaching the lost. They are reaching the poor. They are doing outreach. I don't know. You know, are we? Are we living up to our reputation? These are uncomfortable questions, right? I mean, I think the Revelation 2 and 3, I don't think it was meant to be like Jesus coming in for the performance. Oh, you guys are just whatever. I mean, sure, I mean, everybody has to improve a little bit, but you guys are just, you're, you're, you're all wonderful. All seven churches, you guys are killing it. You're great. Everybody gets a trophy. Everybody's awesome. He doesn't say that. So I guess that's the question. Like, what would a letter from Jesus to Renaissance Church sound like? You know, would it just be full on glowing? I think there was one of the seven churches that had all positive. As I said last week, man, I don't want the nevertheless. I don't want like you guys or, you know, you love me, you sing, man. Scott, I love your diligence. I love your generosity. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Can we just agree to work hard 
to lay a hold of God's grace that we would be the kind of church that is stunning in the eyes of God. That God says like, oh yeah, what about their generosity? Whoa, it's incredible. What about their spirit of prayer? What about their life of prayer? Oh, these guys, they just, they're filling up the incense in heaven. What about their love? What about their hospitality? What about like every category that Jesus might assess us on that it, we just take his breath away? Don't you want to be that kind of Christian? That kind of follower of Jesus? And I know it's late, but this is my last bonus thought. Isn't he worthy of it? I mean, this is when you really get to it and you realize that he has given his very life for us. He made us. He put breath in us. He gave us this opportunity to live. We were lost in enmity with God, right? At enmity with God. But he came into this world and subjected himself to suffering and agony and his beard being plucked out and being flogged and ultimately crucified and experiencing something of the sins of the world being put upon him so that we could go free. Like he did that for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And so how do we reciprocate that? Do you see how unfitting it is to be like, okay, I'm going to reciprocate that by giving him a lukewarm devotion or by giving him a half a heart or by sometimes listening to his commands, but other times I'm not. Like, do you see how like, profoundly offensive that is? Like he is a worthy to be lived for that we should give our all. And that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. We're going to struggle. It's a fight. We have all kinds of forces coming against us. But can we at least give our best effort to this? Right? The Bible says make every effort possible to live for him. It's our reasonable service, Scripture says. Lord, we, we, just, we just ask for your help. Lord, even as we talk about these things, we, we know in our own selves we're not, you know, we're not devoted. We're not good. We're not, you know, we're not like uh, whatever. We're not what we need to be. We acknowledge that. We acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge that we are prone to wander, that we're prone to, to be lukewarm. We, God, we, we recognize that, 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 that we can be selfish. That we can just like not care about the word. That we neglect you days without number. We acknowledge that. That we can be uh, just all about ourselves and pampering ourselves. Lord, we, but we're just crying out to you. Lord, don't let us be that way. Shake us, change us, provoke us, stir us to the depths. 
Don't let us rest in that. Don't let us rest in a lukewarm condition. Put a fire under us. Bother us. God, I pray that you would break down our pride, that you would break down our resistance, all the layers of apathy and indifference that we have toward you and toward your word. We pray, oh God, by your Holy Spirit, that you would pierce through it all, flush it away, give us a new heart, a new devotion. Lord, apart from you, we cannot do that. Apart from you, we cannot love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, apart from you, we can't even overcome sin. So, Lord, we depend on you. We trust in you to change us from the inside out. Every single one of us. Not just some of us, not just the elders and the leaders, not just the council of this church, but every single one of us, Lord, I pray, would be red hot in fervor for you. Do it. In your precious name. Amen. Thank you guys for listening and thanks for staying a little longer. Uh, today. Hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. Thursday this past.